0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Four Kinds of Practice, recorded June 26, 2005 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Just to follow up, Tex, what happened when you counted your breath there? Uh, I remembered I forgot to turn off the coffee maker. <laughs> 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 this is interesting now, so just... Put that aside for a minute, because later I'm going to be talking about how we get distracted by thoughts and stories (coughs) and things. You just had a direct experience of that. And we all have this experience all the time. But when you're given a task like count your breath and you find you can't do it, the contrast brings that uh, fact to light in a very powerful way. So somebody uh, last week or the week before approached me and said, why don't you give a talk about the four practices? And I started to say, oh, well, I've just done so many talks about those. And I stopped to think, and I don't have one talk that talks about the four kinds of basic practices that mystics do. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. And I frankly have forgotten who it was that asked me that. Did anybody here ask me this? No? Well, they can listen to the recording if uh, (laughs) if we keep it. In any case, that's going to be the topic this morning, the four kinds of practice. But we have to backtrack a little bit and uh, talk about how these practices developed and why. And so the key thing to understand about mysticism and the mystics of all these great religious traditions is that the truth that they testify to is not a truth that can be fully communicated in words. It cannot be communicated in words because it cannot be grasped by the conceptual mind, the thinking mind. And it cannot be grasped by the thinking mind because it's a non-dual truth, or let's put it this way, it's the truth of the non-duality of reality. And this is a transcendent non-duality that even transcends the duality between duality and non-duality. So you start to see the logical problems that we get into when we start trying to think about this. So it has to be realized in our own experience, directly realized, not through the conceptual mind. And it's not a theory, it can't be figured out, but some other way. This is the mystery part of mysticism. Now, it is true that mystics do use words to at least point to this truth. Otherwise, we'd be totally lost. So just to give you uh, two basic ways that they do this in very quick brushstrokes, here's what the Hindu mystic Ramana Maharshi says. If one inquires for whom is their bondage and liberation, it will be seen they are for me. If one inquires... Who am I? One will see that there is no such thing as the I. Now, this part isn't quite so mysterious, but it's rather shocking if you really get it. There is no you. That's what mystics say. This you, this entity, this I, ego, however you want to think about it, that you spent your whole life trying to protect, trying to enhance, trying to build up, trying to defend, doesn't exist just doesn't exist you'll find versions of this in every tradition that's putting it negatively how you put the truth in a negative way but we could also put it in a positive way and mystics do and this is a little bit more mysterious here's what the Christian mystic uh, Meister Eckhart says some simple people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they hear it's not so God and I, we are one. And of course, he's a Christian, so he uses the word God. But the Buddhists talk about being one with Buddha nature. The Hindus talk about being one with Brahman, which is their word for the absolute, one with the Tao, if you are a Taoist. So whatever term is used by that particular tradition to mean the absolute, the ultimate reality, what Meister Eckhart is saying, and what all mystics are saying, is that your true nature, is that you think you're some separate little entity, I ego and so forth, but that doesn't exist. What you truly are is this ultimate non dual reality. And then now is uh, the place where we start to go beyond where words can take us. So this is what has to be realized. So over the centuries, mystics of these various traditions have developed a whole host of practices to help their students realize it for themselves directly. And these practices have numerous variations and so forth. In fact, there's so many that in order to discuss them, we have to classify them in some way. So it's convenient to classify them into four major categories of practice. Practices of inquiry, practices of meditation, Practices of morality and practices of devotion. Those are my categories, by the way, but I think if you read through the mystics of all these traditions, you will find versions of these practices in every tradition has some version of these four kinds of practices. Now, there are other practices that aren't included here that I'm leaving out for the purpose of this discussion because we go on forever. There are some practices that are peculiar to a particular tradition. So I'll give you two examples. A Zen koan. It's actually a practice of inquiry, but it's so highly stylized, I don't know of any other tradition that really uses koans the way the Zen Buddhists use them. It's a a funny little paradoxical puzzle. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That then the student has to go off and meditate on. And come up with some satisfactory answer. I'll tell you the principle of it, that eventually the student's mind is trying to figure out a logical answer and the logical answer will always be rejected by the master. So it's forcing the student to go beyond the logical mind. That's the purpose of it. Uh, Among the Kabbalists, who were the mystics of Judaism, there was a practice developed called skipping, where you take the letters of the uh, Hebrew alphabet and you start combining them very rapidly. And first they make words, but then they don't even make any intelligible words. And you keep going like this, like this, like this, like all night long, and you don't stop. And again, eventually you get to the point where the mind can't grasp what's going on anymore. So it takes you beyond that mind. Well, I don't know of any other tradition that actually uses that particular form of practice. So those are some examples of a few practices that are peculiar to a particular tradition. But in general, there are four main categories of practices, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, oh, also, I'm going to talk about them in the order I just mentioned, uh, inquiry, meditation, morality, and devotion, because for a spiritual skeptic, an agnostic, a non-believer who goes on a mystical path, and it's certainly possible to do that, I'm a prime example of that, That's usually the order in which these practices unfold for you. And I think that's probably, for our particular time and place here in this culture, more common than the other way around. Although I must say, historically, most people begin a spiritual path with devotion. They are already committed to a certain tradition, and then they discover the mystics of their tradition, and then they start doing these other kinds of practices like meditation or contemplative prayer and eventually inquiry and so forth. So how you get into this and what the first practice you do is rather arbitrary. depends on your situation, but I'm only going to present one order uh, of unfoldment here. So inquiry. How does inquiry begin? It begins anytime that anybody starts to ask those fundamental questions that human beings have asked themselves since the dawn of time. Uh, Here's how the ancient Hindu Upanishads sums them up. What is the source of this universe? From where do we come? By what power do we live? Where do we find rest? Who rules over our joys and sorrows? You know, there are certain periods in life we tend to ask these questions more, like when we're teenagers. You know, we're just coming out of childhood and we begin to get a sense of the vastness of all this that's beyond just our family, our home, and our school and so forth. And then often we get swept away in uh, worldly pursuits, getting a job and married and children and all that. And then often in midlife, we start asking these questions again. We've come a certain way in life and with various degrees of success or failure or whatever, but, you know, we start to hear the clock ticking and uh, watch the sand start to run out and we start to wonder, (laughs) is there something left I should be doing? Did I really do everything I was sent here to do? And then at the end of our lives, it's another prime time these questions arise, you know, as we really approach death. And then we want to know, what is the mystery before We're swallowed up by it. But we can ask these questions at any time. And anybody who does ask these questions has already begun a practice of inquiry. But the mystics have a warning about this. Because the mystics say, don't be satisfied with any kind of theoretical, conceptual, dogmatic, doctrinaire answer. Even the answers given by your tradition, even the answers given by these venerable ancient scriptures, it's not that they're wrong, it's that if you just believe that, that becomes an obstacle for you. Because you don't have a personal experience of the truth. You don't have your own realization. You have a belief. You have a theory. And any belief you have, no matter how strongly you hold it, is subject to doubt eventually something's going to come along can make you doubt it. So it's not very secure. It'll work for a while, and for some people, it works through their whole lives. But mystics say there's a deeper truth or a deeper way to realize truth, perhaps we should say. So keep going, keep going. Here's what the Buddha said. Accept not what you hear by report. Accept not tradition. Do not hastily conclude it must be so. Do not accept a statement on the ground that is found in our books, nor because it is the saying of your teacher. So we use the teachings, we use the scriptures as guides, but we don't stop with them. This is very important in in a mystical practice of inquiry now. And this is where general inquiry, what is life all about, starts to uh, narrow down and become a mystical path. But most uh, inquiry, mystical inquiry even, begins with reading or going to hear oral teachings like here or in this day and age, recordings and videos and things like that. And that's perfectly acceptable. That's perfectly fine as long as we don't become attached to that form of inquiry. But also, if they're mystical teachings, they keep pointing us back to something beyond the words. And so, really, the heart of a mystical inquiry is self-inquiry. Inquiry into who you are. And why? Because, as the Sufis say, quoting a famous saying of the prophet, whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. If you find your true nature, as Meister Eckhart said, you will find God. So where do you look for God? You don't look for God out there. Look in here. And there's the same teaching in every mystical tradition. Uh, here's Ananda Moyamash, who was a great Hindu mystic of the last century. It is by seeking to know oneself that the great mother of all may be found. It's The same thing as saying, whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. Here's the Buddhist Zen master, Dogen. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. And I think uh, really the Kabbalist uh, scholar Gershom Sholem sums up this whole uh, practice of inquiry very succinctly and, and quite beautifully. It is by descending into the depths of his own self that man wanders through all the dimensions of the world. In his own self, he lifts the barriers which separate one sphere from the other. In his own self, finally, he transcends the limits of natural existence. And at the end of his way, without, as it were, a single step beyond himself, he discovers that God is all and all, and there is nothing but him. So we look into ourselves and we find obstacles and we find barriers and we find separation but we keep moving. We keep going deeper and deeper and we have finally arrived at this non-dual reality again. God is all in all. There is nothing but God. It's just one. A one that transcends one and two and three and four. So How do you then inquire into yourself? Well, a good way to start is to examine what you believe you are and look at that and see if it's true. The Hindus call this neti neti, which means not this, not this. Or not this, not that, it's often translated. And so you just start. Make a list of the things that you think you are. And different cultures, by the way, People have different ideas about who they are. Uh, Some of them seem strange to us. Uh, Native Americans, at least I know among the Lakota, they think people have two souls. That's part of the makeup of a person. And they finally figured out what was wrong with white people, because white people were obviously crazy. And what was wrong with them is they were missing one of these souls. So that's Lakota psycho-spiritual view of white culture. Not bad, actually, if you think about it. (laughs) But different cultures will have different uh, views of this, and different individuals within different cultures will have it. So that is not important. What's important is who you think you are. So as an example, let's just say you think you're your body. So you look at your body. You have to spend time doing this, by the way, and you have to really concentrate and, and make an investigation and examine an inquiry. And you see, what is a body? Well, a body is made up of all sorts of sensations and sounds, gurgling stomachs and smells and sights, you know, and all that stuff. But all this stuff comes and goes constantly. So what body are we talking about? What body are you? It comes and goes in the long run. I mean, are you the body you were when you were two years old or six years old or 16? Too bad, but no, you're not. (laughs) But even in this very moment, it's all coming and going. You aren't coming and going. And then who's experiencing all this stuff, these sensations coming and going? Aren't these phenomena arising in awareness, in consciousness? Well, what is experiencing all that? Then you can look at your emotions. And again, if you think you're your emotions, which emotions, you know, you woke up happy this morning and then you spilled the coffee and then you got depressed. And then, you know, it's constantly changing. Who's feeling those emotions, who's experiencing them? The same with your thoughts, they go a mile a minute. So which thoughts you constantly change your thoughts? You had a whole different set of views at 16, we hope, than you have now anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But again, even moment to moment, the thoughts are just arising, passing away, regardless of their content. Who's thinking those thoughts or who's aware of those thoughts? And your perceptions, just all the sensual perceptions, the sights, the sounds, everything arising, passing, who's experiencing all that? This is the focus of this inquiry. Through this practice, you'll come to really experience that you aren't these things, neti neti. You really aren't your body or your emotions or your thoughts. So who are you, though? That question remains. And if you're going to do this practice, you can't just be a dilettante about it. I mean, just because it won't work. You can't just read a book. Oh, you try it for half an hour and then go have some pizza. Here's what uh, (laughs) Zen Master Haikun says about this. Determined to see into your inherent Buddha nature, you should constantly ask yourself, who is hosting your seeing and hearing? No matter what you're doing, whether you are walking, standing still, sitting down or lying down, whether you are active or silent, whether you are in pleasant circumstances or unpleasant situations, plunge your spirit into this question. What is it that sees everything here and now? So you get the idea. It doesn't mean you have to stop doing other things. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job and go meditate in a cave in the Himalayas. But in the back of your mind, you should be obsessed by this question. And you should be looking in all these circumstances because You'll see all the circumstances are changing. More and more will convince you that you aren't these circumstances. Who is aware of these circumstances? Who is experiencing it or what? So this is how you pursue from a mystical point of view, a practice of inquiry. Now, if you do try this, most of you and most seekers in history have run into a big obstacle. The obstacle is distracting thoughts. For instance, like you left your uh, timer on. What was it? Coffee maker. Coffee maker. Still on. on. Still on. Still bugging you, isn't it? (laughs) Still on. There you go. You sit down to make some inquiry. Now I'm going to watch my body sensations. The next thing you know, you're off worrying about that your uh, coffee maker is still on. And if it isn't that, it's going to be something else. It's going to be the bill you haven't paid, or the fact you forgot to take your car in for a tune-up, or whatever it's going to be. You'll be distracted. And you then go back and you try to do this inquiry, and you'll be distracted again. This is known since the beginning. This is not some modern problem. Here's St. Augustine, 4th century Christian. They strive to comprehend things eternal while their heart flutters between the motions of things past and to come and is still unstable. Who shall hold it and fix it that it be settled a while and a while catch the glory of that ever-fixed eternity? See, if your mind goes back to the fact that you left your coffee maker on, it's going back to things of the past. And then you think, oh my gosh, I hope I get home. I hope I remember when I get home to unplug it. Then it's going to things of the future. And a lot of our thoughts are about things of the past and things of the future. Very few are about things that are actually going on right now. You know, as John Lennon said, life is what's happening to you while you're making other plans. But even beyond that, it's not just thoughts of the past and the future. It's all the images and fantasies and memories and all that that's woven together in this great soap opera, your own personal soap opera that I call The Story of I, that plays 24-7, almost. It has different versions of it at night, you know. It's like uh, you switch channels and switch back. And then there's some periods where you're just exhausted, so you just go blank. But basically, all your waking hours, this soap opera's playing, The Story of I. And it's constantly absorbing your attention. It's constantly distracting you from being able to do any real serious inquiry or even to pay attention to the present moment. What is going on right now? That naked experience of what is going on right now. So the minute you start doing inquiry, you realize, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about all these unwanted thoughts now? And that is how, and why mystics develop practices of meditation. Is there some way we can train our attention to be free of this spell that the story of I weaves, to tear our attention away? And so all meditation practices begin with some kind of training to get attention to be still. Not to be absorbed in all these thoughts. Not to be carried away by all these stories. To concentrate on some object and be able just to stay on that object, even if those thoughts are going, not be carried away by them. Just let the thoughts do what they do. They arise, they pass away, but just simply to stay still. Here's what the uh, Hindu Upanishads say. Take up the great bow of the Upanishads, and place upon it the sharp arrow of concentration. Draw it back with a mind fixed on Brahman, and strike the mark, that which is eternal. That's just what Augustine said, isn't it, really? I mean, even down to the use of the word eternal here, or whatever equivalent is in Sanskrit. Concentration, to be able to concentrate. So this is in all traditions. Here's the Buddhist... uh, Description of concentration meditation, which is one of the uh, points of his eightfold path to enlightenment. What now is right concentration? Fixing the mind to a single object. This is concentration. Develop your concentration for he who has concentration understands things according to their reality. Because we can see them directly. We can see them without the filter of thought, without the filter of our preconceived ideas, without the filter of our stories. That's why it's the key to understanding reality. So all these traditions, the same thing, you begin with concentration and you practice formally, sit down and pick any object. It doesn't matter, the breath could be a sound, the syllable, om, could be an icon, it could be anything. That's irrelevant from the point of view of the practice. It might be relevant to you, if you are, belong to a particular tradition, what you pick, some sacred image or something, might help to focus your attention, to strengthen your concentration. But objectively, quote-unquote, it's irrelevant. It's the principle of concentration. Then, once you have developed what the Buddhists call a serviceable mind, that's a mind that can place attention on any particular object for an indefinite period of time and not be distracted by thoughts, once you have developed that, there are different kinds of meditation practices you can do. Meditation branches out. It's like a tree. So concentration is the trunk from which the branches grow out. And in most traditions, there are two main branches. There are other branches as well, but we don't want to be here all morning. So the two main ones are absorption and insight. So absorption works this way. If you concentrate on some object for a long period of time, and you really develop your concentration, you will see that other objects start falling out of consciousness. You can think of it, you're just not aware of them, but there's a philosophical question if they're not in awareness. What does it mean to be there? But in any case, the experience is the mind eventually is blank except for one object, the object you're concentrating on. This, for instance, is well described in the Tanjali's Yoga Sutras, if you want to get a succinct description of how this works. And then, if you let go of that object, there is nothing there but pure consciousness. That's the classic meaning of samadhi. I say classic because it can also be used in other ways, but to go into a state of samadhi, high samadhi, ultimate samadhi. That is what usually it means. So it takes a lot of practice. It takes uh, a lot of concentration. takes a lot of time to develop that ability. It's usually easier for external renunciates to do than householders because householders have so many distractions. And it's not a guarantee of realization. It just puts you in a position Where there are now no distractions, there's nothing there but consciousness itself. So the possibility of realizing that that is your true nature is higher. Then as an alternative or at the same time, you can also take the branch of insight meditation. And insight meditation, you develop this ability to keep attention still. I'm giving you very brief sketches of this, by the way. Uh, Just to give you an overview of how this stuff works. You have the ability to keep attention still. You're not going to any special state, just ordinary mind. And you become aware of everything arising, passing away, all the impermanence of everything. And then you start to watch where phenomena come from and where they go. And attention follows phenomena. And they all come from consciousness and they all return to consciousness very quickly. And it's very difficult to see because it's a split second and then of course something else is arising, something else and something else, but it is possible to see just where that sound goes to silence. And if attention goes right there, it also returns to that source of all this phenomenon, which is consciousness itself. So there's another possibility of realizing the true nature. So these are just two of the possibilities for meditation, but the point is they all have the same end, ultimately in sight. The end is to have attention return to the source of even attention itself. Here's what Ramana Maharshi says if the mind is turned in towards the source of illumination, objective knowledge ceases and the self alone shines as the heart. And he's talking about self with a capital S, the true self. So, if you practice this for a while, you can then get glimpses of the truth. But the minute you've stopped your formal meditation, you will find that that old story comes rolling back. The whole story of I. Because it's extremely powerful. And it's not made up just of thoughts. It's constructed of thoughts. That's actually what I is. It's a thought of I. But the story is driven by what the Buddhists call afflicted emotions. Self-centered desire, aversion pride, jealousy, envy, any of those emotions that revolves around the self. That's the energy that goes into the system and drives it around. You know, it's like a hurricane. A hurricane is made up of uh, winds and rain and clouds and energy. And the more it starts to form, the more it tightens into this pattern. And at the center of the pattern, there's this very clear eye. And it's nothing, but it looks like something because the pattern has formed around it. And that's a very good analogy for the I, the little I, the separate I that we think we are. It doesn't really exist, but it sure looks like it's there. And it's held in place by the story, the activity of the story going around and around and around. And the more it goes around, the stronger it gets. And we should never underestimate it. If you're looking to get rid of I, and you're looking for something, you're not, as we're going to find out. You're not going to find anything. It's a system, a dynamic. So somehow we have to interrupt this. How are we going to interrupt this? How are we going to weaken the system? And this is where practices of morality come in, keeping precepts from a mystic's point of view. Other religionists... Think of this as the key to getting to heaven. If you're a good little boy or girl and, you know, do the right thing, then eventually you're going to get to heaven. That is not the mystic's point of view of morality. It's also not about living in a better society. If everybody stopped cheating each other, we'd have a, a nicer society living. live in. That may be true, and that's a, a good result if everybody practices, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is to interrupt this Very powerful drama that is going on. So, how does it work? There are two things. First of all, if you commit to keeping certain precepts, it makes you aware of what you're doing and what you're saying during the course of the day. So, just the simplest, easiest example is if you commit to not lying, and, you know, most people don't really think they're big liars, but if you actually commit to it, seriously commit to it, then you'll start finding during the course of that, gee, you lie a lot more than you thought you did. Maybe not great big lies, but just little things. Exaggerating stories because you want people to respect and admire you. Do you know what I mean? Or just skipping some details because you don't want to be blamed for something. <laughs> lies of omission and commission and little things. So just just taking this seriously and adopting these precepts It doesn't bring you suddenly more joy and peace and all that. It's actually very disruptive to your life. You start to see things you didn't want to see. But that is a good thing because when we can see that, then we can make an inquiry at that point. We can say, well, why did I feel I had to lie? Why did I feel I had to uh, exaggerate this story that makes me look better? Is it because my happiness depends on people liking me and respecting me? Well, if that's the case, that happiness is very tenuous because you're never going to get everybody to like and respect you. Whatever you do, there's going to be somebody who doesn't like and respect it, or to defend yourself, and then you're always living with the fear it's going to be discovered, whatever little you know faux pas you committed or mistake or error. So you can right there see how this hurricane gets built up over little tiny things that don't really exist. And when you can see that, and when you can see that in 99% of the cases, when you lie, it's actually not causing you more happiness. It's causing you more suffering because of worry or whatever. Then you can, at that moment in the seeing, interrupt that and it won't happen right away, but the moment will come where you're about to say the same old little lie, and it just doesn't come out of your mouth. You just don't have to say it. And that's like starting to interrupt this whole hurricane. The less energy you put into it, the weaker it gets, you know. So then it starts to be just a tropical depression or it starts to fall apart, as they say. It'll come back, you know, something will happen, and it'll stimulate it. But at least You're beginning to see the mechanism of how it works. It's so important. That's what moral practices do, keeping moral precepts. They show us, in our own experience, the obstacle to seeing our true nature, this illusion created by this story. This is why Al-Ghazali, great Sufi, says, The aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of passion and resentment, Till, like a clear mirror, it reflects the light of God. And then, of course, you can have two kinds of precepts. You can have negative precepts, the don'ts, thou shalt nots. You know, uh, there are five fundamental Buddhist precepts for even lay people. Not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to engage in illicit sex, and not to become intoxicated. So don't don't do this, don't do that. It's very powerful, by the way. A lot of people just want positive precepts, but the point is you're already doing this stuff. And so negative precepts draw your attention to what you are doing. And then, as I said, that gives you an opportunity to interrupt it. And then there are also positive precepts that prompt us to behave more selflessly. Here's Jesus. I say to you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish men to treat you, so you treat men. That's hard practice. But when you do the practice, it's going to arouse all that self-centeredness. And so you can see it, that's the whole point. It's not supposed to be easy. It brings it to light. And then you can see, is this making me happy, living this way? What would happen if I dropped my animosity, my anger, my hatred, all that stuff I have for my enemies, which is just eating me up, you know? Often your enemies don't even know that you don't like them. Self-inflicted pain and suffering. So it gives us a chance to see it and drop it. That's why it's so precious, so important to do. So practicing these moral precepts is really a very, very important part of a mystical path. And eventually you start to see in your own experience for yourself that the more selfishly you behave, the more you keep that hurricane going, you pump in all that energy, the more you suffer and the more selflessly you behave, the more you just drop all that, the less suffering you have. And also the more your life is according with reality, which is selfless. Selfless in both senses. The existential sense of there is no self. There are no selves anywhere. And it's selfless in the sense of giving. It's just all a free gift. It doesn't ask for anything back. It just goes on this miraculous display. Whether we're or kill each other or not, the sun comes up gloriously and there's wonderful sunsets and mountains and, you know, the whole thing. I'm, you know, all for ecology and ecological responsibility and so forth. One of our precepts is stewardship. But I, I also have to tell you, people worry too much, you know. We're not going to destroy nature. We occupy a little cinder in all this. Just go out some some night and look at the night sky. It's okay. Nature's going to be okay. It's kind of arrogant to think that we're destroying nature. So then finally, if you practice inquiry and meditation and morality, and now remember we started with somebody who's a skeptic, who's a non-believer and all that. You'll start to get glimpses of this reality, this divine reality. You'll start to get insights you'll start to get your own experience. Here's the way Rumi describes it. He's a great Sufi poet. Once the mirror of your heart has become pure and clear, you will see pictures from beyond the domain of water and clay. That's the mundane world. Not only pictures, but also the painter. Not only the carpet of good fortune, but also the carpet spreader. You start to have your own experience, your own spiritual experiences. And they will appear to you at first as coming from other. Because you still have a sense of separation. You still have that sense of I, ego. But when the curtain parts for a moment, it's like a ray of light shines in. It seems like it's coming from outside. That's why people uh, have this impression of a god or goddess out there it's not a false experience that's just the way it has to be as long as we're deluded but that also gives us an opportunity to practice devotion you can't practice devotion to something you never experienced it doesn't matter what you call it call it god call it buddha nature call it the Tao. One of the most common terms that mystics have, which is quite beautiful and very appropriate for a devotional practice, is the beloved, just the beloved, the great mystery of the beloved. And you start to have a relationship with this beloved. The reality of the relationship is like looking in a mirror. You know, you spend your whole life not looking at your mirror, of course you don't see anything. You turn around, oh, oh you see something turning towards you. Oh, you turn away, it turns away. Turn back, oh, it looks back at you. You don't realize that it's the same. There's no real difference. So you think what's in the mirror has an independent existence. It doesn't, but that's the way it appears to you. That's okay and that's fine because you can use that here. And that's what devotional practices are about. You use that experience and you use the feelings of awe and joy and bliss and reverence and love that that experience awakens in you. So then you want more. You want to know more. You want to know what this is. You're back into inquiry here. You're inquiring about God now, but you know, God and and you are the same. So it, it really doesn't matter. If you know your Lord, you'll know your true nature. If you know your true nature, you know your Lord. It's all the same, whichever way you come at it. The big difference between devotion and inquiry, and in a way, what makes devotion a more powerful practice and a faster practice is this. In inquiry, you are trying to be dispassionate. That does not mean suppressing passions and emotions. You allow them to arise fully and completely, but you're trying not to identify with them. You're trying to just experience them as objects arising in consciousness. In a practice of devotion, you take this love that's been kindled by these experiences and you channel into it all the desires you have for all the scattered things in the world. So normally, you know, we want this, we want that, and all our energy is all over the place. So now you take that energy and you channel in just one thing. You want the divine. You want the beloved. That's all. Everything else falls away. Just you and the beloved. Here's what Ramana Maharshi says. If you give up all else and seek him alone, he alone will remain as the I, the true self. So often devotional practices begin with things like chanting and doing rites and rituals and stuff like that, stuff that arouses these emotions, that reawakens them and so forth. But the essence of it, boils down to surrendering your will to the divine will, if you like. Surrendering yourself totally to the beloved. You know, it's like an old-fashioned, a romantic love affair where you're going to give up everything for your beloved. It's not like a modern-day love affair where you negotiate everything and make sure you <laughs> get your piece of it. Now, the trouble is, when you start to do that, of course, you run up against the same old obstacles, those distracting thoughts, that are churned up by that story of I. So here you are, want to surrender yourself completely to the divine, and you're worried about the coffee pot that you left on, you know? <laughs> and all sorts of other silly things. So what happens? Well, we need some sort of practice to develop our concentration. Here's Theophane the Recluse, he was a great Christian mystic in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. He says, God is everywhere. See that your thoughts, too, are always with God. How can this be done? Thoughts jostle one another like swarming gnats, and emotions follow on the thoughts. In order to make their thought hold to one thing, the fathers used to accustom themselves to the continual repetition of a short prayer. So here's the beginning of a contemplative prayer practice. And contemplative prayer practice really is like a meditation practice and begins the same way. Usually, in contemplative prayer practice, you begin with a little phrase, as Theophane indicates, or just a single word, Om, or Allah, Allah, or whatever works for you, or whatever your tradition recommends. And you focus your attention on that. And when other distracting thoughts arise, There, you carry it away, you bring your attention back to your mantra, your prayer, whatever it is, it operates just the same way. Again, the only difference here is that in meditation, you're trying to be dispassionate, allowing emotions to rise and so forth, but not making any use of them. In devotion, you are using that love, that longing, that yearning that's been cultivated to focus your attention. And that's very powerful. That's a great help. It shouldn't be poo poo just because it seems like some sort of exoteric thing where you're worshiping something else you've got to find out in the end the truth then the more you experience this the easier it becomes because you're experiencing this bliss and this joy you don't want other things now and finally there's nothing but you and god left and that doesn't mean that you're oblivious to all your surroundings But you see all your surroundings, not in terms of your story, but in terms of the story of God. They all are representative of God to you. Every situation arises. You say things like, well, what does my beloved want me to do in this situation? These are all creatures of my beloved. They don't have any more independent existence. It all comes down to one boundary between you and the divine instead of a innumerable boundaries in your life. If you can see through that boundary, you've got it. So it simplifies everything. And in fact, you finally get to the point where you realize that what is keeping you from the divine is you. Not anything on the divine side. It's you. So then you come to the final demand of a devotional practice which is not just to submit yourself to god's will give up your will for god's will but to give up yourself altogether completely here's what the hasidic masters say make yourself into a vessel for god's presence god however is without limit endless is his name how can any finite vessel hope to contain the endless god therefore see yourself as nothing. Only one who is nothing can attain the fullness of the presence. So that's a brief description of these four practices and how they each work, but how they also fit together. If you start on one, almost inevitably, you're going to be led to other ones. And as I said, you might approach it from the other way around. You might start with devotion and end up with inquiry, but they all end up pointing to this single one truth. But I do have to tell you this about these practices. They produce many benefits, concrete benefits that you'll experience in your life, and they will, if you practice them uh, diligently, they will transform your life. They'll produce insights, they'll produce, they'll unleash, I should say, more love and compassion and joy in your life. They will free you from worries and distractions and this whole burden of self to a certain extent. So there are real benefits to be had on a spiritual path doing these practices. But the one thing they will not do is they will not themselves produce realization, the ultimate realization. And in fact, at a certain point, if you become attached to them, if you cling to them, If you make them into your identity permanently as an intermediary measure, it's okay. But if you become identified as I am a spiritual seeker doing all these practices, they themselves perpetuate the illusion of I because they perpetuate the illusion that there's someone in there doing these practices. And that's like that hurricane. It just keeps going round and round. And so there still seems to be that I that's in there doing all these practices. So you've shifted from doing a lot of worldly things to doing a lot of spiritual things, but there's still the doership going on. And this is why some teachers today, modern teachers, recommend that you don't do any practices. And they say, just stop seeking. But I have to tell you that from my point of view, this is a big, big mistake. And I'll give you three reasons why. First of all, You don't have any choice about seeking. You're born seeking. You may not be born seeking spiritual things, but you're born seeking happiness of some sort. You know, from the first time you went, give me that toy. You want something. You're grasping. So it's not like a big choice we have. Well, I think I'll seek or not seek. That is the condition of delusion. As long as you're an I, you are seeking. That's what I is. I is seeking. So this teaching to stop seeking You can't do it. And in fact, if you try to do it, you're just perpetuating the illusion even more. So it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors here to say stop seeking. It doesn't work that way. But the practices actually do work. But they don't work in the way you think they're going to work. That's the trick here. And now we're getting into the paradoxical mystery part of what a spiritual path is about. So what do they do? they lead you to failure. You can't ever find your true self. Your true self isn't something to find. And you can't surrender your illusory self because it doesn't exist. So in both cases, you're trying to do something you can't do on purpose. Now, I'm giving away a big secret here, but you won't believe me or you'll forget it. I'm sure it'll be okay. (laughs) It's designed to be that way. It's designed to self-destruct in both senses of the term. First of all, the practices destroy themselves. And second, in destroying themselves, they destroy the illusion of self. And the way they do it is because they exhaust that seeking that you've been doing since you were born. They exhaust it. They get you to a point where you can't go on anymore. Here's what Ramana Maharshi says. He's talking about sadhanas, which is the Sanskrit term for practice. Sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadhanas. It is then that God's power is realized. The self reveals itself. There's a big difference between being in a place where you are unable to pursue your practices and where you give them up. Very, very important. And this is not just in the Hindu tradition. It's in all the traditions, in the Christian tradition, all these practices bring you to what Christian mystics call the dark night of the soul. You can read long descriptions about that from St. John of the Cross and so forth. Here's Zen Master Haikun again, and he writes of the Zen practitioner, that after exerting great effort, he will reach a point where his normal processes of thought, perception, consciousness, and emotion will cease. He will reach the limits of words and reason. He will resemble an utter fool as everything, including his erstwhile determination to pursue the way, disappears and his breath itself hangs almost suspended. This is the occasion when the tortoise shell is about to crack, the phoenix about to break free from its egg. This is where spiritual path spiritual practices lead. Don't stop short of that. You're cheating yourself if you do. You're kidding yourself if you do. Keep going. It will happen. Trust. It will happen. So I'm going to leave you with some final advice from the Sufi poet Hafiz. He says, Although union with the beloved is never given as a reward for one's efforts, strive, O heart, as much as you are able. So whoever asked that question, I hope uh, that shed some light on the role of practices, these four practices on a spiritual path, and some idea of what they do. And of course I've had to really oversimplify, but uh, I always like to have an overview to see how things fit in. It, it silences part of my mind. That part of my mind is comfortable and I can go on and do the practices so does anybody have any questions about this or comments yes paul in the cloud of unknowing the author suggests that no matter what you do ultimately the last step is up to god and and some people seem more blessed with receiving the grace than others you know it's again paradoxical One way to look at it, yes, it's up to grace. And especially if you're looking at it from within the mind of a seeker. And that's perfectly true. You cannot do it because you are the obstacle. You're the problem. So how can you attain liberation? How can you attain enlightenment? You see? So then how do you describe how it happens? Well, you can call it grace or the Buddhists don't have any idea of grace, but they'll say it happens spontaneously. And yet there's also a kind of lawfulness in this process. And this is why when Jesus said, knock and it shall be opened, seek and you shall find, he's saying that eventually, if you pursue these practices, it's got to work in a certain sense. Not because it works because you're doing it, because the practices will exhaust themselves if you will throw yourself into them completely wholeheartedly with everything you have. You've got to end up in a place where You can't go any farther. You know, just like I say, if you want to sit down, let's say you don't know what sitting down is. You're on your feet all the time. And you've heard of sitting down. It sounds wonderful. It'd be really restful. But you have some compulsive walking disorder or something. So I could tell you, okay, just go out there on the desert and start running. And you keep running. And you keep running. Eventually, you're going to exhaust yourself and you're going to collapse. It's guaranteed. It's a law of physics. So in that sense, you see, you didn't do it, but it's not that what you did had no relationship to what happened either. Is this making any sense at all? I'm saying this to you because the important thing is don't worry about it. Just walk on as the Zen Buddhists say, walk on, keep going, keep going. Doesn't matter at a certain point whether you understand it or not or anything. Keep going. And hopefully you'll get to a certain place on the spiritual path where you won't even have any choice about that, as I did. I got sick of it. I thought I'm going to quit the spiritual path. Well, there was nothing to go back to at that point. So we just keep going. Yes? At the point of uh, where you can't do a practice anymore, is it because the you has been so diminished or is it because of something else? There's that little thinking mind <laughs> Trying to figure it out. Yakety, yakety, yakety. It's going in. Why don't you see for yourself? Why don't you try it? Try it. Anybody can do it. You don't have to ask me. Okay. Yeah. UFO. <coughs> UFO, right. Thank you. UFO, right. All right, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and you're welcome to stick around, have some tea, check out the library, and until we see you again, peace to you all.